Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, the podcast where you get to enjoy interviews with today's authors of speculative fiction and hear what's on their minds. With me today is a writer who's made a name for herself in both TV and books. Belinda Snodgrass has written for Star Trek The Next Generation, among other shows, and her newest book, The Edge of Dawn, comes out this month from Tor Books. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation. Well, me too. Um, you know, I loved reading your bio because it was full of surprises for me. I learned that you studied to become an opera singer and even performed the role of Gretel in Hansel and Gretel with the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. And then you went to law school and worked for a corporate law firm. And only then did you become a writer. Yes, I, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. That was the basic problem. Um, you know, the opera thing, I'm, I'm not built to be an opera star. I'm pretty small. And uh, so while I had a nice voice, I didn't have a world-class voice. I mean, it gave me the opportunity to go study in Vienna, and that was great. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just couldn't make it there. And my dad's dream was that I become a lawyer. So I did that and realized that I loved the law, but I kind of couldn't stand lawyers. So... I had a very good friend who suggested I might be able to write if I tried, and so I did. Wow, and, th- and things clicked then, huh? Yes, things clicked. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, well, I was fortunate enough to fall into a group in New Mexico where there were a lot of really talented writers very willing to reach out a hand to help. I mean, I had Victor Milan, uh, Fred Saberhagen, Roger Zelazny, and then eventually, you know, George Martin, who, um, who became a is and you know has been and is a very very close friend and so i had all this encouragement and support and guidance and you know you can't you can't beat that wow that's just wonderful you know it's funny cuz i it's i think it so often happens the other way where someone uh, tries their hand at writing and gives up and then they become a lawyer so i'm very happy that you you uh, did it the other way I went the other direction, yes. So let's talk a little bit about your initial foray into writing. You you wrote for TV. Was that the first? Actually, no. Um, I started out in novels. I um, I had left my law firm. I just quit one afternoon because I realized how unhappy I was. And I started writing a series of books about a federal court judge writing circuit in outer space. And uh, But I also needed to support myself, and I realized I, while I knew how to write legal briefs, I hadn't really, you know, I I wasn't a creative writing major or anything like that. So I wrote romance novels under pseudonyms, uh, and I wrote about six of them to pay the bills and to just learn the extremely valuable lesson of how to finish what you start, because that's actually a real, you know, that's a real problem for people. They'll have brilliant ideas and they'll write the first, you know, three great first chapters and then they'll never finish. And that kind of taught me just the the, the discipline of, of doing the work. And meanwhile, I was also writing this first science fiction novel and, uh, and then it sold and I never had to write any more romance novels, which was good. Um, 
but I started out in books, and then George went off to Hollywood. So I'll tell you the Hollywood story. So George goes off to Hollywood to work first on the new Twilight Zone, and then he ends up on a show called Beauty and the Beast. And I get this phone call from George one evening, and he says, you know, Snod, I think you'd be pretty good at the screenwriting thing because it's all about good dialogue and powerful characters and so on and so on, and if you write a spec script, I'll show it to my agent. So I wrote a spec Star Trek's Next Generation script, and um, his agent took it and sent it to Trek, and they bought it, and then they hired me on the show. And so I ended up in Hollywood a number of years after I'd begun writing. So that was that was the pattern there. That was how that all happened. And and that's amazing. The spec script is that was that the measure of a man? It was the measure of a man. <laughs> so that's a that's a very highly acclaimed episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I think that's. I'm not that knowledgeable about how it works in Hollywood, but I would think that's unusual that your spec script, often that gets you in the door, but to have it uh, actually be um, produced and, you know, turn into a classic like that, that's very impressive. Is it, well, it's kind of unheard of, and George George grouses about it to this day because he gave me this huge lecture on how now you will not sell this script because this is your calling card and if they like it you're going to need to have three or to five new other ideas to pitch to them because maybe you'll get a pitch meeting and I remember actually I've gotten the two best pieces of advice as a writer I've ever gotten one comes from George because I said to him I have this idea for the script based on the Dred Scott decision and I think it's a really great idea and if this script isn't going to sell, I don't want to waste it. So maybe I ought to keep that as one of my pitches. And George said to me, no, write, write that script. Because he said to me, never hoard your silver bullet. And he was absolutely right. Because I wrote the most powerful story I had. And that's, I think, why it got bought. And then, you know, all the subsequent things happened. So that was an enormously helpful piece of advice, and I always say that to people, you know, write the thing that you feel most passionately about, the thing that you really feel is, is your best idea. You know, never go to the second best idea, but you know, George taught me to not do that. Wow. Well, one thing that brings to mind is when you were doing the romance novels, which you were doing to make money, uh, what happens there when you know that you're not as inspired by the idea? Or maybe you were, I, but I just wonder... Well, what, I, yeah. I played games in that I would set them in ridiculous places. I had one romance set on, on the space station. And I had one of my heroes and another one was an Olympic decathlon guy who was also a spy. So I was doing like really weird stuff in these romances to stay interested. And I got away with it because it was sort of the height of the romance boom. I mean, romance is still huge. But this was the big boom, and um, so they were kind of buying almost anything. And I think, you know, in some ways it was, I got away with it just because the market was so big. Because I think readers can really tell if you're inauthentic, if you don't love what you're writing about, and that can come through. So I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore, to write in a genre that I don't feel passionately about. And so uh, The Measure of a Man, as you said, was uh, you were inspired by the Dred Scott decision. That's very interesting because the episode was about Data and his having to defend his, his sentience, his, his right to be recognized as an autonomous person. Right. I mean, because Dred Scott was, you know, is a slave a man or is he the property of his owner? 
And it occurred to me that data could arguably be, it could be said that data was in fact the property of Starfleet Command. And that was, and I always found data to be the most interesting character on the show, which was kind of a sad commentary that the robot was the most interesting person. And so I really liked writing about him. So that, that's why I picked him and I picked that particular story. And, and I'm really grateful that I went to law school because I think a lot of the work I've done, I couldn't have done without that education. Right, because there's a whole argument before a judge or a, a, um, an adjudicator to, to make that determination whether he is, in fact, a person. Right, or a property of Starfleet, yes. So much of science fiction features robots who, who basically go bad. It must have been kind of nice to write about Data, who, who was really, you know, such a decent guy. Yeah, it really was. And, and Brent, you know, brought him to life beautifully. Um, and there was, a, there was a sweetness and an innocence. I mean, Data was our child. You know, he was the, he was the person who was learning, who didn't have all the answers and, and could make mistakes, which was really nice because, you know, it, it was tough with some of the other characters because they were all so hyper-competent um, that it was very difficult to tell a story about them because conflict is the essence of drama. And, you know, if they don't have any problems, it's, it's sort of hard to craft a story around them. Good point. So you also uh, work with uh, George Martin on a Shared World series, uh, Wildcard. Yes. <laughs> George and I have been doing this for more years than I want to admit, for uh, listeners who maybe don't know what a shared world is, what, 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 did, what is that? What does that mean? What it means is that George and I created the sandbox, the world, and then we invited some of our best friends to come and bring characters to play, and we would all play together in the same sandbox. So we're all writing in the same universe. We get to use each other's characters, which is really the great fun. And so it's, you get to see how somebody else from the outside would view your character how they would mock them or fall in love with them. And, you know, you have all these interactions, not only between the characters, but then the writers. We get very deeply involved in it, too. I mean, when George and I brainstorm, sometimes we slip right out of being George and Melinda and slip into talking as if we are the two characters who are interacting, um, whether it's, you know, his character, Poppin' Jay, and my character, the, you know, British assassin or whoever it is. And, and it's uh, almost like improv theater, and there's a reason for that, because Wild Cards started its life as a, as a role-playing game. We were in a gaming group, and George was our game master playing Superworld. And uh, we were all pretending to be superheroes, and then George finally one day said, there's got to be a way to make turn this obsession into money. <laughs> and uh, so sitting in my dining room while I cooked breakfast, we cooked up this whole background for what became Wild Cards. Actually, how does that work if someone wants to use your character but do something maybe you would not approve of? Do they do they need to discuss it with you or they can just go ahead and do whatever they want? No, they need to discuss it. Um, we had a lot of help from Bob Asprin and Lynn Abbey who had done Thieves World because they got into the situation where the writers would, you know, get in fights with each other and do terrible things to each other's characters. And they had what was called a master agreement, but it was fairly vague and fairly loose in its requirements. And... 
George and I, I drafted a master agreement that was much more detailed, and we had a sort of carrot and stick approach. If you allow, um, if you allow a writer to use your character in a significant way, you would get a point, and those points translate into money at the end of the year. And the more consortium points you have, the more you've bought into the the, the series, as it were. And so you can always say no, but it kind of behooves you to say yes because you'll earn a point and then at the end of the year we can give you some money out of the, at, from whatever's come in from foreign sales or comics or whatever. And, so, and we also were very careful to pick people who, by and large, everybody really gets along. And we're also very excited. It's like, oh, you want to cut my character's hands off? Cool. Okay. <laughs> no, go for it. Um, so we haven't really had a problem with that. And if it's something that really bothers the, the writer, you know, we, you can say no, and then it won't be done. It's also nice. I mean, I have a care. I was using Paul Cornell, who writes for, uh, who wrote for Doctor Who, and is now, you know, very fine novelist and comic book writer. I was using Paul's character in Wild Cards, and I just sent him the dialogue and said, "Check this for me because I'm not British, and I want to make sure it it rings correctly." And so then he could give me notes and say, "Change this, and this is a little too formal." And that's actually fun to be able to work closely. It, it has more of a Hollywood good writer's room feel than the isolation of being a novelist. Yeah, it sounds great. So now let's talk about The Edge of Dawn, which is, uh, which is something you're doing all by yourself. It's your, your third book in this particular Edge of series, uh, and it features an epic battle between the forces of magic and religion on one side and the forces of reason and light on the other. I thought maybe you could take me or the listeners really into the story and give a sense of, of where we are when the edge of dawn begins. Okay, well my, my hero is um, I like flawed characters. I like people who aren't hyper competent and and totally in in control of themselves. And so my hero is a somewhat diffident, insecure and unsure young man who has been thrust into this position of running not only this multinational company that's worth billions but is held privately. Um, and this, his ownership of it his, has been handed to him by a kind of Prometheus Lucifer figure who has now been taken off stage. And he's left trying to not only run this company and all the finances of it, but he's also trying to be a paladin, which is a man who can use a weapon that can defeat magic. It, it shuts down a human's ability to do magic. It closes tears in reality. And so he's trying to balance being the man of the action hero, if you will, versus the, the CEO of this company. And he's not being terribly successful um, at the management part of it. And so there is a coup within the company. And then he's left trying to figure out how to regain control, protect himself, and mostly to protect uh, he discovers another person who has the same ability that he has. He's he is a person. He's a genetic anomaly. He literally has no magic at all, which means he can use this weapon. And he finds another person who is also the same kind of genetic anomaly. It's very rare, but she happens to be an eight-year-old Navajo girl. And now he has suddenly also been thrust into almost a father figure position in addition to everything else that's going on. Um, I believe the more you torture characters, the the more fun it is and the better off your story is going to be. T- tell me a little bit about the monsters. So they, 
wield magic? I mean, is it in fact magic or is it just look like magic to humans? It looks like magic because what they are is they're creatures from multi- from other dimensions, um, from these multi-dimensions that bump up against ours. And they are drawn to whenever a sentient creature develops in our universe, they come to feed on us. And they've destroyed, one of the reasons we haven't heard any messages from aliens in space is every time a society reaches a certain level, these creatures crawl through, feed on them by, by encouraging them into their worst behaviors, war and rape and hate and distrust and you know racism. And um, they ultimately destroy themselves. And so what they're bringing is that they're coming from dimensions that don't operate on the same laws as our universe. So it, they can warp reality, and it does tremendous damage to our universe with, its, with, with the concepts of you know, weak and strong force and gravity and all these things. They're actually doing damage to the underpinnings of how our universe works. And part of that was because I read this physics book that basically said there is a theory that possibly in other parts of the universe, our universe, gravity might not be the strong force that it is for us. It might be a weaker force. And then you would have completely weird outcomes of, of how nature and how things would, how matter would behave. And it seemed to me that you could argue that other universes might be set up on different, on, on, on different rationales and that that would affect us and could look like magic so that was where i went and they hide themselves in our world by pretending to be um be deities you know from from the greek gods and the mexican gods all the way up to the the ones you know the present ones to jesus and muhammad and our allah and all the rest um, so far, nobody's declared a fatwa on me or burned my book. So, right. I guess you're not a big fan of organized religion. No, I, I am a very strong secularist. I'm. A, I have respect for people and their beliefs as long as they don't make laws based on those particular beliefs. Because we are a secular society, and our legal system is is secular in nature and and should mean should remain that way. Thank you. I guess science fiction generally leans towards even in its fictional, speculative, imaginative, most, at its most imaginative, it still tries to adhere to principles of science, which um, I guess some people say are not necessarily incompatible with religion, but generally it's a different way of looking at the world. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, science is all about doubt. It's all about saying, is this real and how can I test it? And constantly pushing at your assumptions to see how you can actually reveal the flaws in your assumptions. And religion is about the opposite thing entirely. It's about faith and acceptance of it without questioning. And, you know, I think that that can, can lead to very dangerous results and outcomes. Um, and I, I, that was sort of one of the reasons I started this book series in the first place. It, it, the idea came to me at New Year's Eve 1999. I was sitting with friends, uh, Steve Gould and Walter John Williams and a bunch of other people, and we were watching the celebrations for the new millennium going around the globe, even though we were science fiction writers and knew it wasn't really the new millennium. That was going to happen the next year. But And I thought to myself, why on the dawn of the 21st century are people putting more faith in guardian angels and crystal healing power and tarot card readings than they are in, in medicine and chemistry and science? And And I thought... Why are we seemingly going backwards, becoming more superstitious? And, and, and so I thought maybe there's a reason for that. And then I cooked up this idea about these creatures sort of encouraging us um, to believe in, in fairy tales. 
and to fear each other and to hate each other on the basis of external externalities like you know the color of our skin or you know gender religion all these different things was a way to to foster this kind of hatred that they could then feed and be strengthened by. I love the fact that Richard Ort, the the paladin and the the main protagonist, I love that he's gay, or I guess he's actually bisexual. And uh, and he, oops, my cat just knocked something over. It's okay. (laughs) Nothing breakable. Let's see, what was I saying? Oh, that he's bisexual and... Well, he gets to be intimate and loving with someone he cares about rather than just being, you know, kind of eunuch-like or frustrated or having anonymous encounters. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, the, the first two books, he's dealing he's dealing a lot with a, a trauma that happened to him before the first book ever starts. And he is celibate and, you know, terrified of, of intimacy and, and, and because he's desperately lonely and feels you know, overwhelmed, I, I really wanted him to have um, someone he could turn to. And, and Weber has been a character from the very first book um, that he's had a mad, you know, crush on, but, you know, was scared to reveal it or admit it. And, and it was really nice to write, um, I hope, a fairly grown-up love story. I mean, if I ever get to write the fourth book, I'd like to write one more book. I know how this series ends. I just haven't quite gotten to the absolute. I mean, I feel like the book wraps up well, but I'd really like to tell one more, one more tale and, you know, about a relationship, a long-term relationship between these two men that has gone on for a number of years. So. And do you feel, I mean, I, I've only read The Edge of Dawn, uh, and I didn't feel like I needed to read the earlier ones. I mean, did you try to write them so that they could be read independently, or do you feel the best, uh, the best way to approach them is, uh, is yeah, in obviously order? I would, like, um, I would like it if people read all three of them. I mean, for one thing, Tor has been you know, very, very generous. I'm very grateful to them. Um, I had beautiful covers when the first two books came out a number of years ago, but they were a little bit cryptic and they kind of didn't indicate what the books were about. And so, um, and then there was a delay between book one and book two, which is really hard on a series, you know, to keep your momentum going. And then Tor said, you know, we'll reissue them and we'll repackage them with these gorgeous Chris McGrath covers. I'm so thrilled with these covers. And, um, and we'll, we'll give the series another chance to sort of find its readership. So I'm hoping the fact that they brought out, they're bringing out all three books in very quick succession. Book one is available. Book two is available here in the end of July and then book three, August 4th, that people will, you know, read all of them. But I did, I do try to make the books um, understandable to people who just happen to pick up the third book. I mean, hopefully they'll like it. Maybe they'll go back and find books one and book two. But I think it's important that you try to make things stand reasonably on their own and Easter eggs work great for the your old readers, and then hopefully new readers will be intrigued and you know want to know more. But it's a it's a fine line to walk, I'll tell you. So you mentioned the Navajo character, the young girl named uh, is it Mosi? Is that how you say her name? Mosi, yes. Mosi, and I know you live in New Mexico, where at least a portion of the Navajo reservation is is located. And I just wondered if your familiarity with Navajo culture, you know, if you had to do research or if it's just part of your your life you're familiar with it already living in new mexico a little bit of both um i i did research um and and i grew up here so and and one of the scenes i describe in the book where richard thinks about doing being part of a concert thing where they go out and sing 
um, at reservation schools. It was actually something I did. Uh, I was I was involved in something called the Pueblo Opera Program, <laughs> and we would go out to these schools way in the hinterlands of New Mexico and perform. And you know, one time we did an opera. We did um, Little Red Riding Hood. We've done a very shortened version of Hansel and Gretel. And then I was doing just a concert series, a sort of you know formal you know sing Mozart leader <laughs> and Schubert leader. And I was thinking to myself one day as I was out in the middle of nowhere, literally Sheep Springs, New Mexico, um, and looking at this room full of kids, most of whom are boarding school kids because their homes, their hogans are so far out in the desert that they stay at school, and thinking, how is this going to have any relevance for them? But they really love music. And that was the experience of where everyone touched me rather than clapping. The teacher had warned me, in this culture, they don't applaud. But if they like it, they'll want to touch you. And so suddenly I had all these little kids around me, you know, sort of petting me on the arm. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a redhead, so they were, you know, touching my hair. And, uh, and you know, we, we had this nice interaction where they really seemed to, they enjoyed the music and they were letting me know they had. So. And that's what you, you use in the scene with uh, Richard when he goes out to do something similar. All the children are touching him. I have him have that experience of mine. And so, you know, and trying to cope with Mosi's, you, know, you don't just grab these people and start hugging them in the way that, you know, we do in our, in our culture. Um, so I, you know, I, I, had, um, I had fun researching it. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating culture. And, and I, I hope I've done justice. Any mistakes are entirely mine, you know. Is there a big difference between writing for TV and book writing? Uh, you know, obviously there's some differences, but I wondered if, you know, TV helps you with writing, snappy dialogue, and with cliffhangers. I imagine there's a lot of, a lot of ways they complement each other, the skills you've probably honed in, in both areas. I think writing for television made me a much better prose writer. I think when I came back to it, I, I was much stronger from my time in Hollywood. I think my dialogue is, is cleaner, crisper. I think I get to the point more of efficiently in my books now. And, uh, and the plotting is, is really something that I, I learned the technique of what we call breaking a story in Hollywood, where we would have a whiteboard or we would have a corkboard with three-by-five cards and you literally plot out the, the episode. You know, you write up Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, or 5, however many acts you have, a teaser. And then you plot everything and you put up the big scenes on cards. And I thought, this can work for novels, too. And indeed it does. And so I brought back the plot break to New Mexico and to my writing community here. And so we often help each other by having plot breaks uh, where we where we work out all of these things, you know, figure out who's the essentially important characters, what are the big scenes, what are the act outs, plotting backwards from the act outs, um, all of these tricks that I learned in Hollywood, and I'm I am really grateful to them. I mean, one that we used was we used different colored pens for the different characters, so you could look up at the board, and I we could all go, oh look, Troy completely dropped out of this episode after um, after Act Three. Huh, we need to find another few Troy scenes because she's not here. And you can use that with your books. And sometimes that will tell you that a character you thought you were going to need as you're plotting before you start to write, you might not actually need them. Or maybe they're not a viewpoint character. Maybe they're not as powerful as you thought they were if they don't want to kind of go up there on the board and be part of the, part of the action. So, you know, and I know I'm, George calls it being an architect versus a gardener. 
I'm very much an architect. I have to know where this story is going and know the end before I start to write it. George wants to garden. He wants to discover it. He says, he said, I want to plant a seed and I don't know if it's going to be an apricot tree or, or a stinkweed. You know, I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to surprise me. I don't want to, I don't want to be surprised. <laughs> you know, I want to know in advance where I'm headed. So it sounds like maybe the lawyer in you, you know, the, 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 the discipline and the analytical thinking. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I think it really is that, that that's, I, I kind of have a bifurcated brain because I am a lawyer businesswoman in my other life. And then I'm, you know, the writer for the vast majority of my life. But I do have this other other role that I, I live where I'm a different, somewhat different person. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you about all these different things. I just wish you the best of luck with The Edge of Dawn and with the reissue of, uh, of the two preceding books, The Edge of Reason and The Edge of Ruin. Thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate um, the visit, and thank you. Melinda Snodgrass is a science fiction writer whose newest book is The Edge of Dawn. So please check it out, and you check out the other books uh, that preceded it, The Edge of Reason and The Edge of Ruin. You can also check out uh, my other interviews with authors on the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy website, www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. And I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We've also got a Facebook page and a Twitter feed at New Books Sci Fi. My Twitter feed is Rob Wolf Books, and feel free to follow me. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, and theme music by Michael Aaron, and the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Bye now, and thanks for listening.